Thank you for listening to Devoted. We meet every week on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. at Calvary Chapel, East Anaheim. Go ahead and get started. Um, right, yeah. Tonight, uh, we're going to kind of reverse the order. Uh, we're going to go ahead and do the message first and then do the discussion at the end. I think uh, for a study like tonight, it, it kind of lends itself for that. Also, you know, we have a little bit smaller of a group, so I think it'll work out better that way as well. I'm always reminded, uh, you know, when we tend to get together and it's a little smaller, uh, my first reaction is to kind of be a little disappointed or kind of uh, nobody's here. But then I'm reminded of the fact that Jesus did his most mighty works. He performed his greatest miracles uh, in front of the smallest audiences. Uh, You know, it was when he was going to, raised Jairus' daughter when he was going to be transfigured, times like that. It was just Peter, James, and John that were there. It wasn't all of the disciples. So I'm expecting him to do something pretty spectacular with us tonight. Um, A couple of things, though, before we get into our message, uh, just a reminder that next Tuesday, uh, the 21st, uh, we're having our Friendsgiving Unfortunately, the campus is going to be closed that week because of BlessFest. So uh, we're moved it off campus. We're going to meet at Wood Ranch in Yorba Linda. Is that Yorba Linda or Anaheim Hills? Anaheim Hills. All right. Wood Ranch in Anaheim Hills at 7 o'clock. And we'll go ahead and have a dinner there. We've done that before, and it's been a really great time. And I'm thinking that this shouldn't be any different. So... Yeah, we're going to go ahead and do that. If you really want to come, um, but finances are a problem, let me know, and we'll help you out with that. Um, we'll have some stuff coming up in December uh, for Christmas type stuff, so I'm excited about that. Um, a couple of things uh, just to kind of keep in mind. One, uh, there's a few people still sick. You know, Kay still isn't really feeling that great, so keep them in prayer. Um, also, I don't know if you guys saw Sergio and Sandra got engaged, so that's exciting, you know, uh, so, so there's some exciting stuff going on. Uh, hey, Kevin. All right, uh, but we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 6 tonight. Ephesians 6, starting in verse 10, Paul says this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God, so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything to stand firm, stand firm. Father, I do ask that you would teach us tonight, that you would be our teacher, Holy Spirit, that you would lead us into all truth, and you would teach us about this battle that you say that we are engaged in. You would teach us how to stand for you, how to put on the armor, so that we could be effective for you, so that the schemes of the devil will not overtake us, Lord. You said to pray to lead us not into temptation, Lord, but 
there, there comes a time where the, that rubber hits the road and we need to be right. We need to be standing firm in you uh, so that we could honor you. So teach us how to do that. I pray that you'd be with me, that you'd be with my mouth. I know I prepared some things to say, Lord, but I pray that you would speak your word that would be efficacious and edifying and comforting to your people. So we give you tonight, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we've been making our way through uh, this epistle to the Romans, and we've made it kind of to the end. And there's one last subject that Paul wants to stress to this body of believers, and it has to do with the reality of Christian warfare. He wants to kind of just hammer home this idea that we are in a war, that, that there's a battle going on and we need to be engaged in it. Now, when in a group like this, I'm sure when we talk about things like spiritual warfare or a holy war, we have some mixed reactions. I'm sure some of us, probably the guys, get really excited. They like the idea of warfare. They like the idea of combat. Maybe they're into war movies and things like that. And the idea of being called to be warriors and participate in the war with God is exciting to some of us. For others, I suppose, our minds go towards the atrocities that have happened in the world concerning religious warfare and that type of thing. We, we think about things like the Crusades or we think about the, the jihads today and things like that. And it just turns us off. We think, hey, didn't Jesus say that we should just love one another? And let's all just talk about warfare. Why, why are we even focusing on that? Some of us might think, hey, we're like kind of over-spiritualizing things uh, about the Christian walk. This is kind of mystical, but speak of it as warfare and that type of thing. Or maybe it's just too confusing. And they say, you know what? I just, I don't get it. And so I just don't really put too much effort into it. Well, it doesn't matter what your view is. What matters is that we have a reality that we are in a war, that if you're in Christ, you're in a war, whether you know it or not. The enemy is fighting against you, whether you realize it or not. Are wanting not, are not wanting to acknowledge the reality of this war doesn't change the fact that the devil is out to get you. You can put your hands in your ears and stick your head in your sand, all you want, it doesn't change the fact that the enemy, the devil, is trying to destroy your walk and to destroy your witness and to kill your joy. So Paul is writing to us to tell us to join the resistance, join the fight, join the battle. At first, I was going to title this story, this section, Stand Firm. It's three times we're exhorted to stand firm. you know. And then I decided, hey, we got some Star Wars people here, so... We went with join the resistance. God wants all of us to be a part of the resistance, resisting what the devil is doing. Second Timothy 2.4, Paul says, No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life, so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. If you're a soldier, if you're part of the IDF today, you're not just walking around, going about everyday business, going and getting your latte, going for a walk on the beach, and you know maybe going and catching a movie. No, you're not doing what the civilians are doing. You've been called to fight a battle. You've been enlisted in the military, and, and people are trying to kill you, and you are told to, to try to fight the enemy. And that's the idea. We don't just get to meander through life and just 
kind of, hey, go wherever the wind takes me and do whatever I want. No, Christ is saying, I put you in a battle. And this battle is going to be for your witness, for your walk, and for your joy. Don't let the enemy take it. In chapter 1, verse 3, we're told that we've been blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies. And then Paul takes three chapters to explain what all these spiritual blessings are. So this first part of the epistle is often dubbed the the Christian's uh, wealth. It's all about the wealth that we have in Christ Jesus. Then in chapter 4, Paul kind of shifts focus. He says, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And he uses the next couple of chapters to focus on what that worthy walk looks like. He says that we're to be imitators of God. We're to walk in the way that Christ walked. So the first three chapters are largely about our our justification, how we became right with God. How did God save us? How did he take us from the kingdom of darkness and translate us into the kingdom of the light? The next couple of chapters, chapters 4, 5, and 6, are are more about our sanctification. How do we live that out? How do we progress in Christ-likeness and become more like Christ every day as we go through life? And then in chapter 5, Paul's going to talk all about the Holy Spirit, the reality that there is a Holy Spirit, that we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit and empowered with the Holy Spirit and what that looks like. He says that we're going to be joyful worshipers, that we're going to be giving thanks for all things, that we're going to be submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. And that is an important reality for us to understand, that we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit if we're going to be able to do anything for Christ. And in fact, we're going to see that this putting on the new self or being filled with the Holy Spirit is kind of synonymous with putting on the armor of God. All three of them kind of accomplished the same thing in our walk. We've seen the evidences of being spirit-filled. And then Paul's going to get into our relationships and show what that mutual submission looks like between a husband and a wife, between a parent and a child, between a boss and an employee, that there's a mutual submission, a mutual caring for one another. And I've mentioned that it's interesting to me the way that Paul's thought process works. Right, that He's talking about our relationships and how the Holy Spirit's going to work in those. And then he goes straight from there to talking about spiritual warfare. And I suggested that that's probably because that is the place where we're going to experience spiritual warfare the most, is in these everyday relationships, in the relationship between husband and wife, in the relationship between parent and child, in the relationship between boss and employee, the people that we spend the most time with, the people that we're the closest to, those are the relationships that Satan is going to attack the most because they're the most meaningful in our life. They're the ones that he can cause the most damage with. But it all sounds great. It all sounds ideal, right? We have all this wealth. We have all this blessing in Christ. Now we get to be imitators of God. We get to walk worthy. We get to walk with Christ. He's going to transform our relationships. They're going to be the way that he wants to be. That's just ideal. That's great, right? No, there's a problem, right? And the problem is, is that we have enemies. We have three enemies that are trying to trip that up and trying to keep us from living that ideal life that Paul has been describing. The Bible says that the three enemies that we have are the world, the flesh, and the devil. And it's the third of these that Paul is going to concentrate here at the end of this epistle. I suppose that he 
concentrated on the devil because the devil is going to take our flesh, our fallen sinful nature, and he's going to take the world, this world system that's corrupted and going opposite of God, and he's going to use those things in our life to tempt us into not honoring God, not standing for God, not obeying God. He's going to use my fallenness. He's going to use the fallenness of the world in his temptations. And when it comes to the devil, I, I find that Christians often make one of two mistakes. One side goes way too far and, and says that everything's a devil. Behind every mistake, behind every sin, there needs to be some devil casted out. Or the devil made me do it. Or, you know, everything's the devil. We need to go around casting devils out of everybody. We need to go and putting hedges of protection around every place. And we need to go kind of sanctifying every place we're going to go to, make sure there's no demons in it and that kind of thing. And the second mistake I see Christians making is the opposite. I think a lot of us live in a practical way like there is no devil. We practically live like he doesn't exist. We just go about doing what we're doing, completely oblivious to his schemes and his desire to trip us up. And Paul wants to clear this up for us. He wants us to have the right view of who the devil is and what our relationship to him should be. In verse 10, Paul kind of begins this section by saying, finally, finally, right? And there's a scholarly debate regarding Paul's purpose for this section. One side says that he desires to begin a, a new section, talking about one last topic, the idea of spiritual warfare. Another side says, no, this is really his closing. He, he, he's really just going over and recapping all of the things that he had already talked about reminding us to stand for Christ and have right living. They say this because everything that's mentioned from verses 10 through verse 20 are things that he's already mentioned throughout the rest of the chapters. He's mentioned all these things over and over, the themes throughout his book. Now, maybe one day when we get to heaven, we could ask Paul what he was thinking. I don't know his thoughts. I don't know why he said what he said. But I want to suggest this. I want us to consider that maybe the Paul said this because the enemy is trying to trip up and, and, and stop everything that Paul had mentioned in this book. He's trying to stop us from realizing the blessings that God has already given us, the, the blessings that are ours in Christ, those heavenly blessings that belong to us. He wants us to keep us from achieving those, realizing those, and experiencing the joy of those. And then he wants to affect our walk. He wants to keep us from walking with Christ and, and, and being effective in, in ministry and being an effective witness for Christ. And so, so everything that Paul has really been talking about throughout the book of Ephesians, the enemy, Satan, the devil, is trying to keep us from realizing it. He, he's out to get us and to keep us from all that God has for us. And that's exactly what Jesus said about him in John 10.10, right? He says that the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. It's interesting. He says only. The only thing that the devil could offer is to steal, kill, and destroy. If he offers you something else, if he offers you something and it looks like a blessing, it's really just a Trojan horse. It's really just a guise to kill you, to rob you, or to destroy you. So tonight we're going to look at the reality that we're in combat and what our personal involvement with that combat should be.
Now, as I go through this, I'm not necessarily going to go through it phrase by phrase like I normally do in chronological order. This section is really hard to do that to. I'm going to speak more in logical order, or at least try to. But I, I pray at the end of it, it'll make sense to you guys. But for letter A, fill in the word stand. God is calling us to take a stand. It shouldn't be hard to see that that's the theme of these verses. Three times, in three verses, Paul is going to command us to stand. In verse 10, or I'm sorry, verse 11, he says, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. In verse 13, he says, therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. And then in verse 14, he begins with stand firm. So three times in a few verses, he's commanding us and exhorting us to stand firm. When I think about this idea of standing, I can't help but think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Right? When the ruler of their world, with Nebuchadnezzar, demanded that they bow to the idols of Babylon, these three men, they stood tall for the Lord. They said, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to stand for Christ. You see, because Satan's going to try to use our fallen world and our indwelling sin nature to get us to bow the knee to idols. The question really is, is are we going to give in and bow, or are we going to take a stand? Or, or are we going to give in to sin? Or are we going to stand for Christ? And this idea of standing firm is something that we see throughout the New Testament. Paul, over and over and over again, is exhorting us to stand firm. In 1 Corinthians 15, 58, he says, Therefore, my dearly beloved brethren, be steadfast, stand firm, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Galatians 5, 1. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Philippians 1.27, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Philippians 4.1, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my crown and joy, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. One more, Second Thessalonians 2.15, So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. So when we survey the way that Paul uses this phrase, to stand fast or to stand firm, we realize that it entails both having right thinking and having uh, right acting, right? We need to think right. We need to have the right thought. We, we need to know the truth. We need to have right doctrine, but we also have to have right practice. We, we, we need to behave in the right way. That's kind of his pattern, right? He starts with talking with doctrine. You need to believe the right thing and that Belief is going to affect us, and we're going to live the right way. And, and that's what he's calling standing firm, standing fast, is, is to take a stand on what is right and don't be moved. This idea of standing fast, I can't help but think of an offensive line, right? The, the offensive line, his job is 
to, to either uh, is to keep the, the, the defensive line from penetrating and, and getting to the quarterback. They're to stand firm, to stand fast, to hold their ground. And the opponents are trying to push them back to get to the quarterback. And often it's their ability to do that that gives their team success or not success. And, and I want to say this, our ability to be as a church, the salt and the light that God wants us to be, is going to come down to our ability to stand firm or to stand fast, to say no to the devil, to say no to the flesh, to say no to sin, and stand firm in right doctrine and right behavior. For letter B, fill in the word hidden. We are in a battle with a hidden enemy. Paul says in uh, verse 12 that our struggle isn't against flesh and blood. We're not battling human forces. We're not battling human beings. Our war isn't against that. It's against spiritual beings. So we need to start there. We need to have the right enemy. If you're making your partner the enemy, or you're making your parents the enemy, or your boss the enemy, or even you're making Hamas the enemy, they're not. The enemy is the demonic forces working behind them to, to try to trip you up. And we need to see that, that they're not the enemy, that they're the prisoner of war. Those are the people that Jesus loved. Those are the people that Jesus died for. Those are the people that Jesus wants to bring to faith. They're not the enemy. And uh, for number one, fill in, we need to know that we are constantly under attack. Fill in the word constantly. Why do I say that we're constantly under attack? Well, look at verse 13. He says, therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and have done everything to stand firm. What does Paul mean by the evil day? What is this expression, the evil day? When is the evil day? Well, Paul's already told us about this evil day in chapter 5, verse 15. He says, therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. The, the, the days are evil. In, in short, every day is an evil day. Because the days aren't going to help us to live for Christ. They're not going to help us to be able to, to live out faith and to glorify God. No, it, it's going to do the opposite. That's why we need to redeem them. That's why we need to Genesis 50-20. We need to take what the enemy meant for evil and, and allow God to use us to use it for good. Right? So, so every day is really an evil day. Every day the devil is trying to keep us from honoring God. And the way Paul describes and, and, and honoring God, the, the way that Paul describes in, in chapters 4 through 6. So we need to stand against the devil and stand for Christ every single day. But I think there's a little bit of a double meaning here. Yeah, every day is an evil day. Every day we need to put on the armor of Christ. Every day we need to be ready to stand. But remember when Jesus, right after he was baptized, he was filled with the Spirit of God, and the Spirit led him into the wilderness. And he was tempted of the devil for 40 days and 40 nights. And we have recorded in the Gospels three different accounts that the enemy brought to Jesus. Now, there's probably more, but we only have three recorded. In each one of these attacks, how did Jesus respond? It is written, it is written, it is written. And, and, and he used the word of God to fight the lies of the enemy. 
And then after the enemy realized that he wasn't going to gain any ground with Jesus there, it says that he departed and he waited for an opportune time to come and attack Jesus again. And I think that there's times in our lives that are opportune times. There are times that we're especially vulnerable to the attacks of the enemy. Times when I'm in pain or times where we're tired or, or, or maybe when we're hungry, right? We're especially vulnerable for the enemy to come and attack us and to get us to, to not walk in faith, to, to not submit to the Holy Spirit, to get out into the flesh and to, to dishonor God. That's easy to do. I've noticed a few of these times in my life. One of them is right when I get done teaching. When I come home from teaching, like tonight, I know I'm just going to be under the attack of the enemy. You were an idiot. Why did you say this? You should have said it that way. Nobody's, it's, it's nonstop. And that's why I don't sleep on Tuesday nights, right? Or another time is when I have downtime, when I don't have anything that I have to do. You know, I, I feel like, oh, I'm at leisure, right? And, and that's usually when the enemy comes and, and wants to attack me. I mean, that was the case with David. David he never lost the battle. He never lost on the battlefield. Yet the one time that he stayed home, he was on the king's palace, and he was slown, slown by the warrior of lust. And it was lust that got him when he should have been out battling. Right? And so these times I realize that these are in my life. Right? I realize that when I go home, I'm going to be tempted tonight. So what do I need to do? I need to prepare myself for that. I need to get in the word. I need to remind myself of what God says about me and what God says about what we're doing and things like that. So that when the enemy comes, he's not able to gain a foothold. I need to preach to myself, encourage myself in the Lord. That's exactly what David did when he was at Ziklag and his, the people came and took his men or their wives and their kids and all their stuff. And the men are like, Hey, you know, our wives, our stuff's gone, our kids are gone, and they're going to stone David. And says David went and he encouraged himself in the Lord. He, he strengthened himself because it was a vulnerable time. If we aren't alert and ready, obviously he will cause much more damage than he has to. Now, we all know that Israel's at war right now, right? Sure, we're all aware of that. And if we think about it over the last however many days that they've been at war, the worst day for the Israelis of this war was the first day because they were completely caught off guard. They weren't ready. The other team was coming. They were attacking. They were ready for a war and Israel wasn't. And so it was a kind of a one-sided attack at first. But Israel should have been ready. They should have known that the attack was coming because God told them it was. You see, if they would be in their Bibles and, and doing what they were supposed to be doing, they, they wouldn't have been caught off guard. Back in the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel is given kind of the, the history of Israel. He, he, he's given them God's times and plans for the nation of Israel going forward from that time. He says, I'm going to go ahead and read it. Uh, he says, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to steal up, seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern from that the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven 
weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in the times of distress. Then after 62 weeks, Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. The people of the prince to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Here it is. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offerings. And on the wing of abomination, there will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So that's all of Israel's history, going from the time of captivity all the way until the end of the tribulation period. And the Lord tells Daniel, there's going to be war. There's going to be, there will be war even until the end. There's going to be constant war. Be ready. You're going to constantly be under attack. And we know that the, they weren't, right? They let their guard down and they took on a great slaughter. And we know that we're in a constant state of war with the enemy as well. I wonder how much unnecessary damage we incur because we aren't staying alert. We aren't staying ready. We're, we're suffering damages the same way that Israel did on October 7th because we're not going into every day prepared for the enemy's attack. In 1 Peter 5.8, Peter says this, Be sober of spirit, be on alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him firm. In your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren around the world. After you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Right? Number two, we need to know who our enemy is. So fill in the word who. As many of you know, I played football at a fairly high level many moons ago. And each week we would begin our game planning, getting ready for the next opponent by scouting or studying our upcoming opponent. We would look at their personnel. We'd look at, you know, what players they had, who they were good, what guys we need to watch out for. And we would look at the schemes they run, hoping to implement a game plan that would give us an advantage. This is a very vital part of football. Every team does it. If you want to be successful, you're going to want to do it well. I mean, just the other day, Jim Harbaugh, the coach of the University of Michigan, got suspended for doing it a little too far, too well, or taking the scouting a little too far. Um, this is, so that's something that, that we do, right? Just like a, a military commander is going to evaluate his adversary in that before he comes up with a battle plan because he's going to attack their weaknesses. Well, can I suggest that it's equally important for us to study our spiritual opponent and the way he operates if we're going to have success against him on the evil day? So our, our enemy is identified in verse 11 as the devil. Right? We need to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And scripture has a lot to say about this evil tyrant. We know from passages like Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 that he wasn't always evil. He was the anointed cherub and had a special place serving God 
But he became filled with pride and he tried to usurp God's throne. And so he was thrown out of that favored position and he became the adversary to God and to God's people. And one third of the other angels followed him. They make up the demonic realm. We need to remember, though, that this devil isn't like God. I think some of us have a kind of dualistic view of Satan and God. Kind of the Catholics have this view that there are these two opposing forces that are just kind of fighting and, and, and one can't get over on the other one. But that's not true at all. You couldn't get further from the truth. The devil is a created being. He doesn't possess God's attributes like omniscience. He could only be, uh, I'm sorry, like omnipresence and omniscience. He could only be in one place at one time. But he employs his minions, these fallen demons, to do his bidding. We see this in verse 12, that our struggle isn't against uh, flesh and blood, but against rulers and against powers and against world forces of the darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. This is the devil and, and his minions, his, his plethora of fallen angels that he uses to attack us. I think it's un, really unlikely that any of us have actually encountered the devil. Right? He can only be in one place at one time. He's not omnipresent like God. And quite frankly, I think he has bigger fish to fry than each of us. In fact, I, I was kind of surprised as I started looking through the Bible and seeing how many people in the Bible actually had a direct encounter with Satan. And it was actually really few. Right? We, obviously, Eve had a direct encounter with Satan. Right? So Satan tempted her. The serpent tempted her to eat the forbidden fruit. Job had a direct encounter with Satan. Remember, God challenged Satan to, that he couldn't get Job to curse God. And so he was allowed to come and afflict Job with different afflictions. Jesus had a direct encounter with Satan. Right? We just talked about 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness being tempted of the devil. Judas had a direct encounter with Satan. Right? Remember, Satan filled him. And he went out and sold out the Lord, betrayed the Lord. He was filled with Satan. Peter had a direct encounter with Satan. Remember, there was a day and Satan came up to Jesus and he's like, I want Peter. Give me Peter. And Jesus is like, okay, you could have him. And Jesus allowed Satan to sift Peter like wheat. Right? So, so Peter had a direct encounter with Satan. And Ananias and Sapphira had a direct encounter with Satan. It says that Satan filled their heart to lie to the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. Lastly, the Antichrist is going to be filled with Satan. He's going to do Satan's bidding. He's going to represent Satan here on earth during the Great Tribulation. But other than that, I couldn't find anybody else that had a direct encounter with Satan here on earth. So I think that's fairly rare. But the devil has many different names in the Bible. Revelation 12.9, he's called the devil. 2 Corinthians 6.15, he's called Belial. Revelation 12.4, he's called the dragon. And 2 Corinthians 11.3, he's called the serpent. Three times in the Gospel of John, he is the prince or the ruler of this world. And in Revelation 9.11, he is the angel of the abyss. 
We also learn a little bit about his character in the Bible, right? He's a liar. In John 8, it says that uh, he was a murderer from the beginning. It does not stand in the truth because there is no truth for him. When he lies, he speaks from his own nature. He is a liar and he is the father of lies. So he's a liar, but he's also devious. It says in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He doesn't come to you with red horns and a pitchfork. No, he comes to you as a sheep dressed in or a wolf dressed in sheep clothing. He comes to you uh, looking like he's the good guy, trying to deceive you because he's a devious man. In 2 Corinthians 2.9, it says that uh, the Antichrist, who's coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power, signs, and false wonders. He, he's using these false miracles and you know this charisma that he has to deceive people and to lead them astray. He's a slanderer. Revelation 12.10 says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of the brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. That's what he's doing. He's standing before God. He's accusing me and you day and night for our sin. We get a picture of this in Zechariah 3. It says, Then I showed, then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Right? That's what he wants to do. He wants to accuse us before God. He wants to accuse us to our own conscience. You sinned. You blew it. You're no longer a Christian. What good are you to God? You call yourself a Christian. How could you do that? Right? But then Jesus, our advocate, our high priest, is saying, hey, I paid for it. It's okay. I paid for it. We see a bit of his character in our text as well. First, he is a schemer. Fill in the word schemer. In verse 11, it says, put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. This word schemes comes from the Greek word methodia. We get our English word methods from it. You know, the devil isn't omniscient like God, but he's very smart. The Bible says that he's more subtle than all the other creatures. And he has been around for a long time. And in his millennia of opposing God and God's people, he's come up with methods that work. He's got an MO, a method of operation. Right? Criminals, when they figure out one way to commit their crimes that works, they tend to keep doing the same thing because it works until they get caught. And Satan has his method of operation. And we're told what that is in 1 John 2.16. It says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. He used this method of operation when he tempted Eve, right? The lust of the flesh. It, it, It was that the fruit was good for food. The lust of the eyes, right? The tree and the fruit, they were beautiful. They were in the Garden of Eden. And the boastful pride of life. The the serpent said, when you eat this, you're not going to die. You're you're, going to become like God. You're going to get greater wisdom. You're going to get greater knowledge. Right? He used those methods to tempt Eve. And the devil used those same tactics with Jesus. The three temptations that he brought before Jesus appealed to those same Three things. 
In Matthew 4, 3, it says, The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. Jesus had been fasting 40 days, 40 nights. He became hungry. And the devil came to him and he appealed to his flesh. He said, you're hungry. I know you could turn these stones into bread. Do it. Feed yourself. You can't starve to death. You need to die for the sins of the world. He was appealing to the lust of the flesh. In four, 5 and 6, it says, Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. The lust of the eyes. He took them up on the pinnacle, showed them everything, right? Appealing to the lust of the eyes. Finally, in verses 8 and 9, it says, Again, the devil took them to a very high mountain and showed them all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give to you if you'll fall down and worship me, the boastful pride of life. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. You won't have to go to the cross to get him. Right? He was, he was appealing to pride. But Christ didn't have any pride in him. He didn't have any sin in him. So these temptations fell flat on their face. But I can guarantee you when Satan attacks me and you, he's going to use one of these three methods. He's going to use our fallen nature. He's going to use our fallen environment. And he's going to use the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life to try to get us from enjoying and honoring God. And he attacks all of us. He attacks every part of us, mind, body, and spirit. Right? He attacked Eve's uh, mind by deceiving her, by telling her lies about what God had already said. He attacked Job and Paul's body. Right? He afflicted them. And he tried to get them to stop trusting God's goodness. Right? And, and to, to try to curse God. And Paul had to learn, no, that God's grace is sufficient, that God is still good, despite my physical suffering. And he attacked David's spirit. When David was discouraged, he came to David and said, hey, you know what? You're weak. You need to number your men. How big is your army? And he tempted David to, to number his army, to count the number of his soldiers, and to Count on his human strength instead of the Lord's. He tempted him to find strength in someone or something other than God. In First uh, Chronicles 21.1, it says, Then Satan stood against Israel, and he incited David to number Israel. Wow. We saw some of his methods in chapter 4, verse 27. In verse 27, it says, do not give the devil an opportunity. And he starts mentioning things, things like lying, anger, theft, um, unwholesome speech, unforgiveness. When we start behaving in these ways, we're, we're working right into the devil's methods. We're, we're, we're setting a trap for us, giving the devil an opportunity to trip us up. Right? So we need to recognize those things. We need to flee from those things. The second we start to realize I have unforgiveness in my heart, I need to repent of it, and I need to get right with God. Otherwise, I'm giving the devil a foothold, a strong tower in my life. Lastly, we see that he is powerful. I the word powerful. 
In verse 12, it says, for our struggle isn't against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against powers, against world forces of darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. See, the devil or Satan is the leader of the fallen angels, and he leads them in an effort to destroy us and our witness. He's extremely powerful, more powerful than us, more powerful than we could ever imagine. There's this story in the book of Acts in chapter 19 where uh, these guys are coming and, and, and trying to confront this demoniac. And, and I think this really shows the power of the demons and the devil. But it says this in chapter 19, verse 14. The seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. The evil spirit answered, they're trying to cast out demons. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus and I know about Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit, uh, he leaped on them and he subdued all of them and overpowered them. So they fell out of that house naked and wounded. They became known to all, both Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell on all of them. And the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Right, so, so if we go and we try to confront these beings not being filled with the Holy Spirit, not standing firm, we're no match for them. They're going to devour us just like they did the sons of Sceva. So we need to be careful with Satan. We need to respect his power. But we don't need to fear it. There's no reason for us to fear Satan. In 1 John 4, 4, uh, John says this, you're from God, little children, having overcome them, the world, Satan, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. The one living in you is so much stronger, infinitely stronger than Satan and the demons. You know, these deliverance ministries today are becoming very very popular, right? Every problem a believer has, it's kind of tied to a demon. We need to cast demons out of each other. Right? We need to, uh, you know, the demon of this and the demon of that. Everything has to do with a demon. You know, the Bible nowhere speaks of a believer actually being demon-possessed. If you could find once in the Bible where a true believer is actually demon-possessed, I'll give you $100 because it doesn't exist. And, and nowhere in our text or anywhere else in the New Testament does it tell us to go out and fight the devil or to bind the devil or to cast the devil out of our presence. No, it says that we need to stand and resist the devil. We need to resist what he's doing and he'll flee from us. In 1 John 5.18, it says, And we know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who is born of God keeps him. And the evil one doesn't touch him. Satan can't touch you, much less possess you. In John 14, 30, Jesus says that the ruler of the world is coming and he has nothing in him, right? He has nothing inside of Jesus. He, he can't get to him, right? And, and, and we're in Christ, and Christ is in us. And, and Christ isn't going to share us with the devil, right? So, so he can't get inside of us. He can't touch us. All he could do is tempt us from the outside, Lastly, we see that he is wicked. Fill in the word wicked. He is the leader of the spiritual forces of wickedness. Everything about him is 
anti-God, anti-righteousness. He only comes to rob, kill, and destroy. That's all he does. And then for letter C, filling, God will equip us with supernatural power. Fill in the word supernatural. In verse 10, it says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. You know, we can't fight the devil and his demons with conventional weapons because he's a spiritual being. He isn't flesh and blood. We could launch all the bazookas and that that we want in him. And it ain't going to do anything. That ain't going to help us in the fight against the devil. We need much stronger weapons. And thank God that he provides them. When it says that we need to be strong in the Lord, that verb is in the passive voice, meaning it's something that happens to us, not something that we do ourselves. The idea is, is that when we stand for Christ, we're going to be strengthened. We're going to be given the supernatural power to defeat the enemy's attacks. All we have to do is take that stand. See, but how do we get this power? How do we stand for Christ? Letter D, sometimes getting dressed is the hardest part. Fill in the word dressed. Uh, verse 11 says, put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. So we stand firm and then we're equipped with power, which is the full armor of God. That's how we stand. That's how we get supernatural power. But what are the armor of God? What does that mean? What is this thing that we're told to put on? I'm glad you asked. We're going to get into that in the next couple of weeks. <laughs> but that being said, you look at the armor, every aspect of what the armor is, and it comes down to two things. It, 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 number one, it's describing Christ's character. And number two, it's describing aspects of the word of God. So the idea is this, is that every day we need to try our best to imitate Christ's character as displayed in the scriptures. And as we do, we'll be endued with power behind what we can comprehend. We need to get up every day and say, I'm going to imitate Christ. I'm going to live today to glorify Christ, to copy Christ, and I'm going to obey the scriptures. And as we do that, we're going to be putting on Christ. We're going to be putting on our new self. We're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We're going to be putting on the armor of God. It's interesting to me that we're told to put on the whole armor of God. You know, we don't get to pick and choose which aspects of the word we want to obey. We don't get to be like Jesus in some ways. Our enemy is clever and he's extremely powerful. If we're only like Jesus in some ways, if we're only obeying some parts of the Bible, he'll attack us in the areas we're not and he'll trip us up and cause damage in our life. Another interesting to me about thing about this armor is if you read the book of Isaiah, you'll see that Christ is described as a warrior. And guess what? He's wearing armor. All of this armor that Paul's describing in Ephesians 6 is the exact same armor that Christ is wearing in the Old Testament. So the idea is, is when we're standing to obey Christ, we will be given Christ armor. Christ is going to fill us and fight in us and through us to protect us from the enemy. I love this. Galatians 2.20. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. I, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the newer translations. The traditional way that we read that. 
I love the way that the King James translates it. It's a little bit different. It says, I am, present tense, crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life I live now, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There's a difference. There's a difference in the beginning, right? One is present tense and one is past tense. There's a difference in the preposition at the end. One is the faith in Christ and the other is the faith of Christ. Now, both of them uh, syntactically are, are correct. Both of them, you can look at the grammar, the Greek, and you can make a case for both translations. Both of them are theologically correct. It's up to the hermeneutic. It's up to the Bible translator to decide which one he wants to use and that has to do with the context. But what I like about this is the idea that when I die to self, when I crucify myself with Christ, it's as if I'm promised that I'm going to be given the supernatural faith. I'm going to be given the very faith of Christ. Christ is going to man himself, manifest himself inside of me and give me a supernatural power, a supernatural faith to be able to say no and resist the enemy. I love that. And I think that's what Paul is getting at here. What I really love about the idea that we have Christ's armor on, that we're giving Christ's armor, is that Christ's armor is a tested armor. And it's been found effective. Remember at the end of Jesus' ministry, he, he says this. In the last week of his life, during the time that the, uh, the sacrificial lamb, the the, the Passover lamb was to be inspected by the high priest, examined to make sure it was without spot and without blemish so that it can be the acceptable sacrifice to God. It was during that time of the week that Jesus kept presenting himself before the priest, before the high priest, and, and they're examining him. And they're finding out, hey, there ain't nothing wrong with this guy. And he actually stands in front of them and says, hey, which one of you can convict me of sin? And not one of them could open their mouth in any way to accuse him. He was perfect. His armor perfectly worked, and he is offering us that same armor if we'll stand with him. So the idea is Satan is going to come and he's going to tempt you with a false belief or with a sinful act. We need to say no. We need to stand for Jesus. And we need to do this by putting on his character and obeying the word of God. And as we do so, we'll be equipped with supernatural strength and the very armor of Christ. You know it's possible to resist the devil, right? God wouldn't command us to do so if it weren't. You know, no Christian can ever say, the devil made me do it. The devil can't make you do anything. The devil has nothing inside of you, remember? He can only tempt you to do things. The only way that you're going to disobey God is by your own will. James 4, 7 says, Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Real quick, a couple of last things I want us to remember. The first one is, is God is in charge and he has a purpose for the enemy's attacks. Fill in charge and purpose. The devil, we're told in verse 12, is the leader of the spiritual forces in the heavenly places. He's leading this anti-God spiritual army 
against God and against God's people, trying to ruin the plans of God. Now I say that, I want us to flip back a couple chapters to chapter 1. In chapter 1, Paul finishes the chapter by praying for the church. I'll pick it up in verse 19. He says, these are in accordance with the working of his strength and might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet. And he gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. All things, that includes Satan, that includes the demons, that includes the spiritual forces of wickedness. So the devil leads the fallen heavenly host, but God leads Satan. God's in charge. Satan could only do what God would allow him to do. Think of Job. Satan couldn't touch Job until God gave him permission. Satan couldn't do anything to Job until God gave him permission. One day, Satan came to, Pete, to Jesus and said, hey, I want Peter. Give me Peter. And Christ gave him permission to sift Peter like wheat. Why would he do that? Why would Christ say, okay, yeah, here's my disciple. Here's the guy I love. Here's my top guy. Go ahead, take him. Sift him like wheat. Why would he do that? Well, because the process, in the process, Peter will be strengthened, and then he'll be able to minister to his brothers. That's what Jesus says. Luke 22, 31 and 32, it says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. I'm going to allow Satan to attack you and to sift you because it's going to strengthen you. It's going to grow your faith. It's going to allow you to minister to people in a greater way. We need to remember that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that God won't allow us to be tempted more than we're capable. So yeah, he's going to give the demons and give Satan the allowance to attack us and to cause this spiritual warfare in our life because it's for our good. But we need to remember God knows us better than we know ourselves. And he isn't going to let him go too far. He isn't going to let him go past what we're able to handle. You see, somehow God uses the devil in spiritual warfare to reveal himself to us and to progress us in sanctification and to give us opportunities for witness. How many opportunities to witness do we get because of the attacks of the enemy? That's exactly what Peter's talking about in First Peter chapter 3. He says... Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you're blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Take a stand, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. I love that. The, the attack of the enemy is going to, Give me opportunity to witness for Christ. Last, we need to realize that God will reward you for standing. Fill in the word reward. 
He's going to use the warfare in our life to bless us now, right? We're going to grow in sanctification. We're going to have things about God revealed to us. We're going to become better at ministering and witnessing, all of that. Remember, God uses all things together for our good, even the attacks of the enemy. But he's also going to bless us in eternity. We're going to receive heavenly rewards for standing firm, standing steadfast against the enemy's attack. Second Timothy 4, 7 and 8 says, For I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all those who have loved is appearing. I love that. So fight the good fight. And yeah, it's hard. Yeah, you're going to go through some pain and some struggles. And Paul's life attests to that. But you know what? It's worth it because there's a, a crown of righteousness awaiting me. One more verse, James 1.12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Right? There's rewards awaiting us for our steadfastness for Christ. Right? So the enemy's there. He's always attacking us. He's always trying to trip us up, keep us from our calling of loving God, honoring God, being a witness for God. And, and God is telling us, no, stand firm. Resist him. I'll give you everything you need to do so. I'll glorify myself through you. I'm going to show you things about myself. I'm going to use you to witness to this world. I'm going to use his attacks to make you more like my son, Jesus. And one day I'm going to just bless you and reward you for your steadfastness. Amen. So God, I do thank you. I thank you that you have given us the power to stand firm against the enemy. I pray that we would start seeing more and more of the way that the enemy is working in our lives, not just generally in all believers, but particularly in each one of us, Lord, and that we would make no provision for the flesh, but we would uh, submit ourselves to Christ and, 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 and honoring Christ, Lord. I thank you that we have your resources to do that. I thank you that you have said that you will one day reward us for doing so. I pray for those that aren't here, Lord. I know some of them are downstairs for the Royal Rangers reward. Some of them are sick. Some of them are on vacation. I pray you just bring us back together. I look forward to next Tuesday just hanging out and having some food together for Friendsgiving, Lord. We have so much to be thankful for. I pray you'd be bringing those to our remembrance in the next week or so. I pray for those that are serving at BlessFest, Lord. I pray that we would just be a good witness for you, Lord. And yeah, just make it a great day. We know you will, Lord. We know it's more blessed to give than to receive. And we're reflecting your heart. And so there's a blessing that's going to come our way for that. But Lord, we just love you. We're thankful we're here. And we want to give you all that we have. In Jesus' name we pray. And